Praise the Lord. It's wonderful to be with you. My name is Jim Howard, and I come to you from the other side of the country, over in Maryland. And I'm glad to be with you. Uh, it's no problem at all for me to be here because I have a daughter and a son-in-law here, so glad to have the invitation. Uh, good to be with you. I'm going to uh, just tell you a little bit about what's happening in Sabbath school at the General Conference. Is that okay? Um, and I should be quick to add that sometimes, I say Sabbath school because I'm here at, at Avent Hope Sabbath School, but sometimes we leave off the fact that uh, at the General Conference and in most places around the world, it's Sabbath school and personal ministries. And I have a burden for both. Um, but Sabbath school uh, is going strong in many, many places in the world. And I want you to know that. And in, in North America and in some other westernized areas, Sabbath school is declining, and we know that. So there's a strong effort being made to revive Sabbath school, and, uh, and we believe that the Lord is going to help us with that. Um, but there are many areas of the world where the church is very strong in Sabbath school, and where Sabbath school is a means of growing the church at large. Um, so we're very thankful for that. Um, we have a new Sabbath school. Parents of young children are going to be happy about this. We have a new Sabbath school curriculum that we're working on right now uh, for from babies all the way through youth, 18 years old. And uh, that will be, there'll be a staggered rollout of that. Uh, 2025, we're going to see a totally new curriculum for babies and beginner. And then the next year, kindergarten and primary. And then the next year, uh, we're going to have junior and teen. And then the next year, youth. So we're very happy about that. We have uh, a wonderful curriculum manager who lives in Australia, Nina Atchison, who's helping us with that, and she's just incredible. So it's going to be good. It's going to be solid biblically. It's going to be distinctively Adventist. And it's going to be mission-focused, and it's going to involve the whole family. So you're going to want to be, uh, to be linking in with that as soon as it comes out. Uh, we also uh, have our inverse... Bible study guide, and for the sake of our editor, Pastor Joe Reeves, I had to make sure I joined the Inverse uh, Sabbath School this morning. And where's our leader from this morning, from Inverse Sabbath School? Go ahead, raise your hand. I know he was here. Okay, well, he just likes Sabbath School. He doesn't want to stay around for this part. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was good. It was really good. I was going to commend him. It was a great class, and I was, I was thanking the Lord for it. But Inverse is growing around the world both uh, the, the lesson study and uh, the program. We're picking up programs in, in Europe and in the Philippines. All around, there are inverse programs picking up. By the way, in the official General Conference Sabbath School and Personal Ministries app, uh, you can find all of the, your favorite Sabbath schools, like Amazing Facts, It Is Written, Talking Points. How many of you have heard of Talking Points Sabbath School? Oh, good. There's a guy I know on there. He's my brother, my brother, my much older brother, Mark. Anyway, Mark and, and Cameron are, good, uh, are solid Sabbath school proponents, and we put them into our official app, uh, along with Hope Sabbath School and Derek Morris and, and others. So you can find all of that. You can listen to the Sabbath school on audio. All that is in the official app. So check it out. All you have to do is go to Sabbath School, search Sabbath School, and you'll get to the official app. So anyway, we're excited about that. We also, in another sort of pseudo-side part of my role, 
Uh, it was mentioned, I'm an assistant to the president for total member involvement. How many of you have heard of total member involvement? Okay, that's not bad. Um, we are trying to launch, and we just uh, voted it at spring meeting, which happens in April of every year at the General Conference with people from around the world, uh, that are executive committee members from around the world, union presidents, division officers, etc. Um, we voted something that then we kind of gave more, uh, more detail to at annual council just uh, here in October called Global Total Member Involvement, where we are inviting every church around the world to, to enact or, or implement a culture-changing evangelistic strategy that is comprehensive. But it will include evangelistic reaping meetings in every church around the world. This is our emphasis, is to have a comprehensive, uh, not event-based, but comprehensive uh, local church-based um, evangelistic strategy that includes public reaping. In some places, it'll be in small groups or seminars or what have you, but we, we're hoping to not only have a big splash, but to have more than a big splash uh, by really establishing a culture-changing event. If you want to check that out, and I please, uh, I invite you to, please do, it's at globaltmi.org, globaltmi.org. I'm not going to take time to talk to you about it now, but hopefully you'll hear about it down the pike from your own conference. That is the, that is the goal. Anyway, I'm going to jump into our, to our message today. By the way, on the screen it said, He Knows Me was the message. That's not actually the title. The title is, He Knows Me? It's a question mark. It's a question mark. Makes a difference. It's a question mark. Um, before I pray, I want to uh, speak of some sad news. Some of you who are uh, on Adventist social media may be aware of this, but yesterday... Uh, there's a general conference vice president who oversees each of the departments of the general conference, just gives advice, it's kind of advisory. And the advisory vice president for the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department is Elder Maurice Valentine. And yesterday, Elder Valentine died of a heart attack uh, suddenly at the age of 63. It was totally unexpected. And we need to pray for his wife, Sharon, and, and their children. So I'm going to lift up a prayer for them and a prayer for us as we take time to worship together this morning. Let's, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your goodness toward us. We're thankful for the gift of salvation that has been offered so freely and for the way by which you pursue each one of us to give us that gift. And Father, we're grateful for all the ways that you have brought us to this day and to this point where we can give you our time and attention, where we can worship you, and we can have our, where we can have our hearts changed and transformed to serve you. Today our hearts are heavy, Lord, for the loss of our dear brother, Pastor Maurice Valentine. And we pray for his family today. In a special way, we ask that you lift up Sharon, his wife. May she feel the promise of Scripture that you are the God of all comfort. And Lord, we pray for his children and grandchildren. 
And we pray for all of his loved ones and for your church because he was actively involved in many areas of your cause. So we want to thank you for being our refuge and our help in any time of need. And we now ask, Lord, that as we take time to consider your word, that you would speak to our hearts personally. We want to hear from you, Lord. So please abide in this place, send the Holy Spirit, and may we know when we leave this place that we've been in the presence of Jesus. This is our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt lonely in a crowd? Multitudes of people all around, and yet you feel somewhat invisible. This is a common experience for humanity. Walking by people uh, in in mass who are absorbed in their own interests and give you the sense that you wonder if anybody really notices that you are here. Jesus is different, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Jesus is interested in us. He notices us. The love of Jesus is not just for the world, but it's for each one of us, each individual. This is the message that is given in Luke chapter 15. We're going to take a quick look at Luke 15 to start off our message this morning. So take your Bibles, if you would, or your phones, and turn to Luke chapter 15. And we'll look at the parable of the lost sheep, of course, This is found in Luke 15 and verse 4. Luke 15 and verse 4. In verse 3, the Bible says, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and then in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. This is one of my favorite parables in the Bible, one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. And I guess the reason is because the beauty of this parable is the number of sheep that were lost. He could have said anything here, but he made it clear, and I believe it was very intentional. There was one sheep that was lost, only one. And the good shepherd pursued after that one lost sheep until he found it. That's what Jesus' love is like. It's personal. You matter to Jesus. This is why when he walked on the earth, he ministered to people, not merely corporately, but individually. Ellen White describes it this way in Gospel Workers, page 117. She says, Every soul was precious in his sight. I like that word, every. You know, we're told that the mission for the church is that we take the gospel to every creature, every creature. Jesus didn't love crowds per se. He loved crowds because there were individuals in the crowd. Jesus saw the value of every soul. And the fundamental problem with humanity is that we don't. We simply don't see the value of every soul. We don't see the value in others, and we sure don't see the value in ourselves. Because deep down, we know ourselves far too well. We know how selfish we are. 
We know our own guilt and corruption. We know our weaknesses. We know our repeated failures. And far too often we know our hypocrisy. And so we can be selfish. We can be thinking more highly of ourselves than that of others. And at the same time, in our heart of hearts, feel utterly worthless for being that way. It's the self-destructive spiral that every one of us experiences through sin. And there's only one way to fix it. As John the Baptist said, and Ellen White repeated, centuries later, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we truly fix our eyes on Jesus, we're finally able to see two things. The two things that we so desperately need to see if we will ever experience true peace and salvation in life. Those two things are, number one, our sin. And number two, our worth. Number one, our sin. And number two, our worth. You know, I love the lyrics of many songs at Christmas time. And uh, one of my favorite lines is from the song, O Holy Night. You remember it, I'm sure. It goes like this. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Perhaps no other line resonates me, with me so fully every time I hear it than this line because it reminds me of my own conversion to Christ. My parents left the church the Adventist church, when I was a little boy. How many of you here were born in the church? That's incredible. I was born in a hospital. And, but that is incredible, really, that all of you were born. I have a strange sort of background that I have this, you know, my parents were Adventists when I was born, but then they left when I was nine. And so really, my growing up years, my formative years were totally secular. Uh, totally worldly in my formative years. I was striving for the approval of others. I was living for the world. I was finding no real security or satisfaction or peace in my life. I was, as the song goes, in sin and error, pining. That word pining, what does that mean exactly? I, it's an old word. It means uh, longing. Uh, you could almost say in this context, languishing. But then he appeared, and my soul felt its worth. You know, you'll never find your worth just by telling yourself how valuable you are. Or listening to pop culture tell you to ignore the haters because you're special. Those sentiments may be nice, even true. But the problem runs much deeper than that for us. Because no one really knows your sin and guilt, but you and God. So there's no one in this world whose voice will truly bring peace to your soul and cause you to feel its worth, but God's voice. We have to look to Him for true peace. I want to show you a couple places in the Bible where I believe uh, the lyrics of this song, O Holy Night, kind of draw its inspiration. Uh, let's first look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Have you found it? All right, we'll begin in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is an incredible three verses of Scripture. The Apostle Paul does this uh, quite well, where he describes just how awful we are. He needs to do that. We need to see it. We need to read it. We need to believe it. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Every one of us are born dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 4, though, is quite triumphant because of the first two words. What are the two words? But God. So he spends three verses talking about just how dead we are, as if you could be more dead than dead, if you understand what I mean. And then he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. I really love the part where, while he's describing how he's rich in mercy, God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, he pauses and he says, even, even when. I want you to think about that for a moment, because this is, Paul is trying to make a point to us. You know, this is the thing that we have a hard time grasping sometimes. And so Paul wants to bring it home very clearly to us. Even when we are dead in trespasses and sins, when they have absolutely nothing with which to merit ourselves to God, when there's not a single ounce of purity but only corruption in the soul, when our past is littered by nothing but shame, even when, because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, he makes us alive. He, he kindles something inside of us, spiritually, that we might have an interest in noble things, in good things, in godly things. He does that sheerly by His grace. And this changes a person. This makes us different. I want to show it to you in one other place. Go to Titus with me. Titus is in those five T books before Hebrews. Of course, Philemon messes it up. Philemon starts with a P, but, but before you get there, you have the five T books. And uh, I'd like to look at Titus, which is the last of the T books, right before Philemon, which is right before Hebrews. And look at Titus chapter 3 with you. Have you found it? All right, Titus chapter 3. And I just want you to pause here for a second. Basically, the Apostle Paul is going to say the same thing he just said in Ephesians 2. This is the story of salvation. If we had read further in Ephesians 2, you know, you keep going and it talks about how by grace we are saved through faith, etc. We're, the, we're the, the, the handiwork of God, etc. Well, he does the same thing. He follows the same pattern in Titus. He's just giving the story of salvation. And he starts in verse 1 of Titus chapter 3. 
remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility, humility to all men. Now here's where he begins this story. For we ourselves were also once what? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Okay? Dead in trespasses and sins. What's the next word? But. But what? But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man, what? Appeared. When it appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is incredible, really. What Paul was saying, both in Ephesians and now here in Titus, is in essence what the lyrics of O Holy Night was saying. That we were in sin and error pining till Jesus appeared. That is, until His love was revealed to us personally. He appeared. That happens individually, personally. And the soul felt its worth. It happened to me when I was 22 years old. I had decided to read a bit of the Bible. As I told you, my parents left the church when I was nine. I had no major plans. I wasn't expecting anything more than to learn a little bit about it because I was always afraid of being embarrassed and I still claimed to be a Christian and I didn't want to get into a conversation with someone and have them ask me something in the, about the Bible when I said that I was a Christian because I knew nothing about the Bible. Like I didn't know a single word in the Bible. So I thought, someday I need to read a little bit of the Bible just so I don't embarrass myself. This was very much of my motive. But, as I read, I was changed. There was no Bible worker, no pastor, no evangelist there. It was just me and the Bible. And a personal revelation of Jesus to my heart. I learned through that experience that salvation comes by divine revelation. When Peter was asked who Jesus was, he answered, Thou art the Christ! the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered and said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. We can know information without divine revelation, but we cannot know Christ unless we have a personal encounter with Him. As a new Christian, I became very involved in my church while beginning my career as an accountant. I graduated from The Ohio State University and began a career as an accountant. But because my conversion happened right at the end of, right before I was about to graduate, uh, I was very active in the church. And after about eight years, I started pastoring a small church as a bivocational pastor, or a lay pastor, if you will. I did this for a few years until I started to receive invitations from various places to become full-time, to become a full-time pastor in a few different conferences. And I really wrestled over this. I had a good job as a controller of a manufacturing company, a good company. I was advancing steadily. I was making much more money than a pastor. And I didn't know if it was really God's will that I go into full-time ministry. 
As discussions with a particular conference progressed, I began to get concerned. I really didn't want to lose the financial security and close proximity to family that I had enjoyed while working in my secular job, but I felt a strong burden for ministry, and the one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to say no to God. So one morning, I just pleaded with him. I got down on my knees, and I said, Lord, it looks like this is going to happen unless I say no. But I just don't know if this is from you, and I need to know. Not just if you want me to ever get into full-time ministry, but Lord, I need to know if you want me to take this particular call and leave my career now and start a new career in full-time pastoral ministry. I need to know if now is the time. I need it to be clear. And that's what I prayed. And that night, same day as that prayer, I was preparing for a sermon. And I was reading in the book, The Desire of Ages, on page 246, and I read this. Until this time, none of the disciples had fully united as co-laborers with Jesus. They had witnessed many of his miracles and had listened to his teaching, but they had not entirely forsaken their former employment. That was me. I had not yet forsaken my former employment. And I knew in that moment that the Lord was about to answer my prayer. So I kept reading. Under the circumstances, it was a relief to them to return for a short time to their fishing. But now, Jesus called them to forsake their former life and unite their interests with His. Immediately, they left all. And followed him. I knew in that moment that God was speaking to me personally. It was a specific answer to my specific prayer. He was calling me to forsake my former life and to unite my interests forever with him in gospel ministry. Is there anything more awe inspiring? than the realization that the God of heaven is taking an interest in you and speaking to you personally. I don't mean with audible words or some mystical experience. I'm not talking about that. I just mean the calm conviction of the Holy Spirit that God is addressing you and your particular situation. It brings peace and joy and affirmation to the soul like nothing else in life. I've come to believe that it is this kind of personal encounter in one form or another, perhaps not quite so clear or dramatic, but in one form or another, this kind of personal encounter is what brings people young and old to conversion and to surrender to Christ. Every disciple must know God personally. And so it should come as no surprise that taking a personal interest in people and engaging with their uh, interests and individual concerns is what defined Jesus' method of making disciples. It defined his method. Listen to this quote from Christ's Object Lessons, page 229. 
The Lord desires that his word of grace shall be brought home to every soul. To a great degree, this must be accomplished by personal labor. This was Christ's method. His work was largely made up of personal interviews. He had a faithful regard for the one soul audience. Through that one soul, the message was often extended to thousands. It was to one man, Nicodemus, that Jesus spoke the well-known words, well words, for God so loved the world. But it wasn't just the world that Jesus was concerned about. He cared about Nicodemus' personal situation. Do you remember what he said to him? He said, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? It was the personal interest, albeit in a mild rebuke, that Jesus took in Nicodemus that influenced him to eventually become a dedicated disciple. The same could be said of the woman of Samaria in the very next chapter of John. In the middle of a discussion about Jews and Samaritans, Jesus made the matter personal. You remember? He said, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus said to her, I'm sorry, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And you'll remember that when the woman left to tell her townspeople about the encounter, it wasn't Jesus' message about Jews and Samaritans and where we ought to worship that she communicated to them. But rather she said, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. It was the way he addressed her personal situation that reached her heart. In John chapter 1, we read about Nathanael. Nathanael was the one who, when hearing about Jesus, questioned whether anything good could come out of Nazareth. But when Jesus called him a true Israelite, or an Israelite indeed, it got his attention. Do you remember what he asked Jesus? He said, how do you know me? It was a very personal question because this was a very personal comment that Jesus was making about him. And Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that's all it took to convince Nathaniel. He shouted, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It wasn't just the supernatural knowledge of Jesus that won that disciple's heart. It was the personal nature of that knowledge. It was the fact that Jesus cared enough to know details about Nathaniel's life and to take a personal interest in him. Then there was Thomas, the doubting disciple. Even the eyewitness testimony of his trusted friends wasn't enough for Thomas to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But all that changed, you'll recall, when Jesus appeared and addressed Thomas and his doubt personally. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. The fact that the risen Lord of all the earth would appeal to him and his personal doubt was more than enough to change it into confidence and belief. You remember how he responded? The, the Bible says that he answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor of Christians. 
before becoming the great apostle Paul. He refused to even consider the possibility that a lowly Nazareth, Nazarene, lowly man from Nazareth, would possibly be the long-awaited Messiah. That is, until he had an encounter with Jesus. And when the glorified Christ introduced himself to Paul, do you remember how he addressed him? He addressed him personally. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what did he mean, kick against the goads? Paul knew in that moment Jesus had been reading his heart because Paul had been kicking against the goads, resisting the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he, if none else, started receiving when he saw the beautiful words of Stephen at his stoning. He started resisting strongly and fiercely the Spirit of God, and Jesus addressed him personally. He knew exactly what had been in his heart. And in that moment, everything changed for Paul, and he yielded for the one, to the wondrous love of Jesus, which he later would describe as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It was personal to Paul. And then lastly, there was Peter. Peter was not afraid to make his allegiance to Jesus known publicly. You recall that. But for all his self-confidence, Peter was not all that self-aware. Like many of us, Peter had to learn the hard way. Once, twice, three times, he denied Jesus. And then the fateful moment came when the Bible says, amazingly, that immediately after the third and final denial, in Luke 22, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter must have thought, how could Jesus be thinking of me right now in the middle of this suffering? Why right now did he turn and look at me? The Desire of Ages gives an incredible description of that moment. On page 712, it says, while the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. The sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of pat compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow. Conscience was aroused. There was an incredible thing happening to Peter. And if you look close, you'll see that it was happening in every one of these stories that I just shared. In every case, there were two key elements in their encounter with Christ. First, there was an exposure of sin. You'll remember Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and yet you do not know these things? The woman of Samaria, you're right, the one you're currently with is not your husband. Nathaniel, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Thomas, you won't believe until you stick your hand in my side. Saul, why do you keep kicking against the goads, resisting my spirit? And Peter, not only did you deny me three times, but you wouldn't believe me when I told you that that's 
what you were going to do. In every case, they knew that their sin was laid bare before Jesus. There was no escaping it. It was fully exposed to him. This is critical, and this was uh, a necessity for the experience that each one later went through. Because after this happened, in every case, the soul felt its worth. In fact, and pay attention here, it was the realization of sin that enabled every one of these men and women to feel their worth. Try to justify or rationalize our sin and we will never escape feelings of worthlessness. You see, if Jesus hadn't seen or known their failures, they would have just thought that if he had seen them, he would not still have wanted to save them. It was his very knowledge of their sin laid bare before him. It was the clarity with which they knew that he could read every secret of their heart. Coupled with a still burning desire to save them that they saw in him. Coupled with, as Ellen White described, that look of compassion and forgiveness and pity in his eyes. It was the awareness of sin and the compassion and desire to save that they saw in Jesus' eyes that brought each one of them to that point where their lifelong feelings of doubt and, secure and insecurity were broken and light flooded their souls once and for all with this sense of an unfathomable and undeserving personal love of God. The experience of salvation involves a personal revelation that includes an honest confrontation with Christ. Every one of us must have it regarding our own sin. Just like he did with the woman of Samaria, Jesus will always talk to us about the truth of our hearts, our habits, our lives. And it is those who refuse to go down that road with Jesus who have never wrestled with God over their own sin, who will hear the words, I never knew you. Because we weren't honest with him. If the woman of Samaria had turned from the conversation after having her sin addressed, or if Peter had been unwilling to acknowledge his denial, or if Paul had continued to rationalize his persecution of Christians, none of them would have been born again. Now, since one of my areas at the General Conference is personal ministries, allow me to speak for a few moments about the importance of following the example of Jesus ourselves. Taking an individual interest in people is something that every disciple of Christ should do. This is what witnessing is all about, and it's the great need of the church. We read in the book, The Ministry of Healing, page 143, that Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. Many of you have probably heard that quotation. We rarely read the next paragraph, which begins this way. There is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. 
If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. Making disciples is primarily a personal work. It can't be accomplished by sermons alone. The personal witness of every church member is needed. This is why Jesus said that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is needed is more harvest workers. In other words, more people with the caring heart of Jesus, willing to take an interest in people's lives and in their interests and in their eternal welfare. Jesus' imagery of the harvest gives us a biblical strategy to follow in our personal efforts of making disciples. First, we need to prepare the soil of people's hearts by befriending them and showing them that we care. This is what medical missionary work is all about. Next, we plant seeds of truth by engaging people in spiritual conversation, inviting them to Bible study or Sabbath school or a church event, sharing a piece of literature with them. When these seeds take root and an individual begins to show an interest, we need to go deeper and cultivate that interest by engaging them in full message Bible studies where we show them the message that is so needed here at the end of earth's history. But we can't just study with people. At some point, they need to be led to make a decision. And so we need to appeal to people to make a decision to follow Christ, that it's going to be for their good, that they're going to be happy, that they're going to live a more joyful life. And we need to harvest decisions for Christ and for baptism. But after we've baptized people, we need to preserve the harvest by nurturing them in spiritual habits, by training them to be engaged in the work. Ellen White says that when individuals are baptized, they should be set to work after one year. No, that's not what she says. She says they need to be set to work at once. And she says, especially those newly come to the faith should be put to work immediately. Because as they labor, she says, they grow stronger. And this is what prevents people from leaving the church. All of these, by the way, preparing the soil, planting the seed, cultivating it, harvesting it, and preserving it, make the framework for the discipleship plan of every local church. And this is what we are uh, encouraging and recommending through global total member involvement. But all along the way, and this is important, the key to success is found in the personal interest, sympathy, and love that we express in all our labors. It's personal. This is what we find in the Bible. The reason we know about the leper who cried out, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The reason we know about blind Bartimaeus who ignored the crowd and cried out all the more. The reason we know about Zacchaeus and about the paralytic lowered through the roof and about the woman who touched the garment of Jesus is that Jesus stopped to take an interest and to minister to each one of them. No one was invisible around Jesus. And so, I am astonished by the individual care of our Savior. And that's who I want to commend to you today. The book Desire of Ages describes it beautifully. It says, Jesus knows us individually and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows us all by name. 
Every soul is as fully known to Jesus as if he were the only one for whom the Savior died. He cares for each one as if there were not another on the face of the earth. Friends, this love that reaches each one of us individually can rescue the most hardened among us. It has that kind of power. We love Jesus not merely because he's the Savior of the world, but because he's our Savior. And in the same way, making disciples is not about merely preaching to crowds or sending out mass messages by social media. As important as these things are and as much as I recommend them. But at its heart, making disciples is about drawing close to people. It's about noticing them, taking an interest in them, and listening to them. It's about showing our love through personal labor and then telling them the good news of a personal Savior. How many of you, like me, would like to ask God today to reveal himself to you in a personal and powerful way. Would you like that today? And then how many of you, like me, want to draw close to others in personal labor so that you can share the love of a personal Savior? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that though there's a pretty good crowd here today, you don't just see the crowd, but you see the burdens, the fears, the doubts, the anger, the frustration, the grief, the addiction, the corruption, the hopelessness, the weakness of every single one among us. And yet, in the midst of of that full knowledge, you have not stopped pursuing us. Each one of us are here today because you have called us. Each one of us are here today that we might hear your voice. Oh, Father, speak to the heart of that brother, that sister, who's in this auditorium today, who needs, in a very real way, to hear your voice, to know you personally. And Father, please help us. Help us not to get caught up in programs and events so much that we lose sight of the need for the method of Jesus, personal ministry. Help us, Father. We thank you for your love and for your forgiveness as we stray along the way and in all our weakness. We thank you for your strength, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.